0: So what has transpired since we looked at that and now what we're going to look at in John 5 verse 31 through 47 is this, people are ticked off because Jesus did a thing on the Sabbath. He messed with their neat, nice little religious system and uh, they're very mad. So what we encounter here in verse 31 is, is almost a trial. Jesus is, he's almost on trial for what he's just done, this healing, and so he's, He's conversating with the Pharisees, with the the, the religious leaders of this Jewish culture. So, let's jump right in. John 5. going to start in verse 31. Going to end in verse 47. This is God's Word. Let's read it. If I alone bear witness about myself... My testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, John the Baptist, and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how would you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken through your word. Now we ask that you open it up to us. We ask that you make it possible for us to understand the scriptures. Without you, we can't. So we beg for your Holy Spirit to do it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so during a trial, which a trial is something that's aimed at getting the truth, right, in a courtroom, when a witness is called to the stand, what are they asked? They put their hand on their Bible, and what are they asked? Someone tell me. Yes, thank you, Nicole, completed that. But you you did 80% of the work, okay? (laughs) Okay. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? You know, you've seen that on all the courtroom TV shows that you so love to DVR and watch. Judge Judy. So this is what a witness is asked. A witness comes up to testify to the truth, and you put your hand on the Bible, and you say, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And this is a principle that started not just, you know, in the American court system years ago. You know, in fact, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament of God's Word, when a, when a capital crime was committed, uh, the judges of the land would get together, and before they could give and issue the death penalty to someone, you had to have two different witnesses who, in essence, said the exact same thing the exact same way. So, you know, say uh, you're being, you're, you're put on trial for murder. Well, you have to have at least two witnesses who come together and say, this is what I saw, this is what day it was, this is how it happened. And they took it so seriously that if one of those witnesses was found out to be lying, they would be put to death. So this is what a witness does. You're called to the stand, and and you are witnessing as to what you've seen, as to what you've heard. Well, I tell you that because I want to set up the context of where we're at. Jesus was once again being put on public trial, if you will. You see, as Jesus moves from, uh, as, as, as his ministry grows and as it moves, it moves from, hmm, that's interesting, who's this Jesus guy, to we have to stop him. And so many times in public encounters like this, people would question, hey, 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 wait a minute, you're doing this thing, hey, hey, you're not lining up with what we want. And so he's put on trial again by the leaders in the Jewish community, because he's broken their nice little traditional law. And these seeds continue to be planted and grown as to, eh, we've got to get rid of him. But here we are, some 2,000 years later. But is Jesus not still put on trial by the masses? I mean, think about it. Is, is he not still making claims about his life and about your life that are that are very offensive, very abrasive? Isn't he demanding things from the world that are very uncomfortable and that we don't like? Isn't he still doing things? Uh, he's still at work in, in miraculous ways in the hearts and minds of his people, and yet the world misses it and even rejects him altogether? So this scene that we have as Jesus is encountering the Pharisees really is not very different than the scene we have in 2014. So my proposal this morning, and more importantly, the testimony of Jesus Christ himself is this. The evidence is clear. Jesus has authority. Not just over a small little following of religious people who sign on and are crazy enough to get on board, Jesus has authority over all of the earth, and he has the evidence to back it up. So put yourself in a courtroom here as he's on trial. Let's look at that. So let's go to work in our text and and examine Jesus' defense and and how it should apply to us. Uh, I just want to read through some of these to help you make sense of this. First, I started in verse 31. And Jesus is saying to the, to the opposition, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Well, that seems a little confusing, doesn't it? I mean, oftentimes throughout the New Testament, we have Jesus who's making claims about himself. He's making claims about his work, his mission, um, what he's here to do. So, so is he telling us not to believe him? Don't believe just me? No, that's not what he's doing. He's basically beating them at their own little legal game. Because he understood that the law at that time required for at least two witnesses to validate a testimony. So he's like, hey, that's fine. You don't want to believe just me? You know, you think I'm a crazy guy who's coming and making all these outrageous claims? That's fine. I'll double the legal requirement of witnesses needed. And so he's going to give us four witnesses this morning, just in this text. So that's what that means. It means that it's not just me, there's a witness. Uh, like, for example, recently I had to sign some, um, some documents uh, for a bank. We sold our car, and, um, and so someone who bought it was getting a loan um, to, to pay for the car, and they had to, we had to sign it over, the title and all this good stuff. And there's a spot on the piece of paper that says, you know, basically an X, and you sign here. And then below it, it says witness. Well, I can't be both of them, right? It's someone else, you know, this third party has to see, okay, that's actually him, he actually signed it, and I saw it. So that's a witness. And that's all Jesus is saying. Like, okay, let me give you some witnesses who, who um, know who I am and what I'm doing. If, if that's what you want, I'll give that to you. So, first to the stand, he calls John the Baptist. Witness number one. Everyone knew who john the baptist was okay if you were in earshot of this kind of dialogue it would ring bells you go oh yeah john the baptist he was he was a pretty well-known dude so look verse 33 you sent to john and he is born witness to the truth not that the testimony that i receive is from man but i say these things so that you may be saved he was a burning and shining lamp he wasn't the light he was just he was a smaller version right he was a lamp And you were willing to receive uh, or to rejoice for a while in his light. It's very logical that this would be the first person that Jesus would call to the stand. Again, because uh, John the Baptist's ministry had gained much popularity before Herod just up and decided to kill him uh, on a whim. But everyone would have known about John the Baptist. They would have known the message of John the Baptist. They would have known what he said about repentance. They would have known what he said about the kingdom of God coming near. They would have known what he said about the, the one who's coming to take away the sins of the world, you know, the Lamb of God. And so he's going, hey, this is witness number one. This guy was anointed by the Holy Spirit to be this great forerunner to me to come and to proclaim who I am. And we talk, we've talked about a lot, especially when we were in the first part of John, how in many ways we're to model our lives after John the Baptist, this guy who was very clear and bold and had experienced radical life change, and he was paving the way for Christ to enter in. And this is our call. So he goes, okay, well, we'll start with a guy that you're familiar with, a guy that you actually liked to a certain extent, and a guy who God the Father sent to pave the way. So there's witness number one. Witness number two He calls his own work or miracles to the stand. Look in 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Guys, if you look to the Bible and you look at the miracles that people do as that's evidence that there's a God You've missed the purpose of miracles. That's a, that's a presupposition. Things that happen supernaturally presupposes that, of course, there's a God who, could, who does these things that are out of the ordinary. So we don't go and look at, well, Jesus did a cool thing, so that proves that there's a God. That proves that God exists. The purpose of miracles in the Scripture is to authenticate someone's um, prophetic role. When you do a miracle, that's basically... God's, uh, his seal, his stamp of, look, he's from me. You can take him seriously because he's doing things that aren't normal. Satan can't do these things. You can't do these things. Only I can do these things. And so when when I send someone to do a miracle, that means they're from me. So you, do you get that? That's the purpose. So what we have is Jesus has just told these these religious spectators this. Listen, if you won't believe just my words, and if you won't believe the words of John the Baptist, you should at least believe my works, because you're seeing some of the stuff that I'm doing, right? I mean, this whole discourse is is coming as a result of a guy who had clearly been paralyzed for 38 years, and now he's out, you know, skipping around and on a pogo stick or something. I don't know. You know, Walker recounts a, a man with a withered hand in front of their very eyes. It, okay, it's normal. You're seeing this stuff, and yet you're still not believing. You're still missing it. And so Jesus' point in doing this and saying, "Believe my works," he's going to look. God is with me. He has sent me. He's he's um, he's putting his seal of, he's with me. You probably want to listen to what he says authenticating his identity as the Savior is what he's doing. So that was the second witness. The third witness is God the Father himself. You know, there are a few occasions in the New Testament where we have God speaking audibly. Um, One was at Jesus' baptism. Um, The Father says, uh, this is my beloved Son, uh, in whom I am well pleased. And the other is at Jesus' transfiguration. We hear audibly God the Father is... um, is saying, this is my son, I have sent him. Obviously, these people weren't around to hear this. But look at what Jesus says in verse 37 and 38. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard, and his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You see, what Jesus is saying is that if you truly knew God the Father like you think you do, because you know the Scriptures, you study them, your religious efforts, you're you're good on the outside, but if you really knew God the Father like you think you do, you would believe my testimony. And that leads me pretty easily to the fourth witness that he calls to the stand. It's the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures that the Pharisees and the religious leaders so loved and valued and studied and were devoted to. You see, the people Jesus was speaking to, they would have known the Bible really well. They would have known the Scriptures really well. Um, he was saying, yeah, your Bible studies, great. Your 15-minute your devotionals that you're doing, Pharisees, great. And yeah, the Scripture does lead to eternal life, but only because they lead to me. The Scriptures point to me. This is what Jesus is saying. How can you read this and not believe in me? How are you missing it? If God's Word is just something that, that maintains your religious kind of traditions, then you've totally missed it. And that's where these people were. In essence, these people are at a crossroads. Here's the crossroads they're at. Who am I going to believe? Who am I going to believe? Or am I going to believe our religious teachers who... Who don't know God. Or am I going to believe God incarnate. God himself. Who has some pretty reliable witnesses stacking up over here. And Jesus tells us in verse 40. Who they did believe and who they would continue to choose. It says, yet you refuse to come to me. That you may have life. Who who did they choose? They chose themselves. Culturally, my friends, we're at the exact same crossroads. It's it's the exact same as if Jesus is in a crowd of people and they're skeptical. They want to save themselves a certain way. And and this group, their self-salvation of choice seems to be religion. But culturally, we're at this same crossroads. Hey, this morning, you, if you are hearing my voice... You were at this same crossroads of, who am I going to believe? You see, the problem was not that Jesus' teachings were too complicated for them to understand. The problem was that it was too demanding, and it was too humiliating for them, really. You know, they're going, you mean abandon a religious system that we've been accustomed to, we've been married to for years and years and years? You mean abandon our own self-righteousness, our own way of saving ourselves Offer this obscure Jewish prophet? I mean, isn't that the great stumbling block for your friends? Isn't that the great stumbling block for you and for the world that it just seems, it just seems ridiculous? This is outrageous. It's foolish. It's intellectually humiliating. And yet people, as they see the work of Christ, as they encounter the work of Christ, continue to go the other way. Jesus wraps up this discourse, this conversation in verses 41 through 47. And what he's doing is he's summarizing what sets him apart from the world. And he's saying this, one man, you guys, you seek the approval of men. You want to do things that operate on this earthly level down here that seeks the approval of men. And me, I seek the approval from the creator of the world, God the Father. How have they missed it? I mean, these people are talking with Jesus. They've seen what he's doing. They've heard about what he's doing. How have they missed it? This great cloud of witnesses, I mean, presented on the stand, boom, boom, and yet they're still missing it. How? Why? I'm going to finish up our time, just a few minutes of some, some, some now personal application of this is why they missed it, and this is why many of you are missing it. The first thing is this. Their hearts were not set on God. This is what he tells people in verse 42. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. In Romans 10, Paul, a little bit later, um, he's acknowledging this same kind of thing, going, you're religious, you look good on the outside, you have zeal, but it's aimed in the completely wrong direction. Listen to Romans 10, verse 1 1 through 4. This is Paul speaking. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Let's just stop right there. How many of that is you? How many of you is, 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 is that describing? They, they have a zeal for God. They signed up for a mission trip this morning, even one that's out of the country, but they don't really have knowledge of God. For being ignorant, of the righteousness that comes from God. and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is saying that and what's being recorded here in John's gospel is people who have great religious zeal. They have great spirituality but it's gravely misguided. And so my first point of application to you would be, is that you? Is your heart set on God, the Father, knowing God, loving God, walking with God? Or is it just religious? Is it just set on being a good person or trying to, trying to, to, to blend into this community here that we have going in the grace of being senior high? You know, well, I don't want to be an outcast. I don't want to, look, I don't want to do certain things. Is your heart set on God? First point of application. Second point of application. Here's why the, the crowd missed it, and here's how, why you miss it. They listen to the lies of the culture rather than the truth of God. This is what's going on. Jesus is telling his audience that, so you're telling me you'll listen to some clown who comes seeking his own self-glory, but you're not going to listen to the one who comes from the only God. That's what he says in verse uh, 43. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Did you know that uh, Jewish historians estimate that there were at least 60, probably more, 60 people in antiquity in this time who came proclaiming to be Jesus, basically. They were the Messiah. You know Jesus wasn't the only one, right? You know He wasn't the only one that they, that, that uh, made this claim. There were many people who came and said, Hey, yep, it's us. We're sent from God. We're the Messiah. Do this thing. Do this thing. Do this thing. Follow me this way. Follow me this way. Follow me that way. Sixty. Did, did you know that? Now, can you name one of them? No. Why? Because Jesus is the only true Messiah sent from heaven to rescue. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, back to Paul... He tells people, and he's even addressing believers at this point, and he's warning people about listening to the noise of the culture. He's warning people about, um, hey, hey, you got the truth of God right here before you, and yet you're you're buying in and listening to listening to what the culture is saying. Listen to what he says in Ephesians four, uh, verse fourteen. We've talked about this before. He's about maturing in your faith. He says, so that we may lo- no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Application for you, life application. Listen, Jesus' audience, those in whom he was engaging with, and if you're in this room, he's engaging with you now. God's word is open. We're listening to Jesus. We're looking at him That audience, they were blind to the truth, but they readily drank in the craftiness by human cunning. And so my question and point of application is this. Is that you? Do you know God's word at all? Do you value it? Do you seek it? Do you find it to be satisfying? Do you find it to be the truth? Is this where you go for answers or do you go out there? This was the great stumbling block for this crowd and Jesus. He's going, I'm right here in front of you. God's words, you have them. If you would just read them and interpret them correctly, they're all pointing to me. And yet you choose to just kind of, you know, waddle around out there listening to each other, taking this little bit of advice and following this path and that path. Is that you? Third point of application and then we're done is this. They were blinded by self-salvation. This crowd was working really hard to save themselves. And this is what every human does who's ever been born. Every human that's ever been born is trying to, to, to save themselves somehow through atheism, through um, you know, riotous uh, prodigal son-style living, through uh, right-wing conservative Christianity, you name it. Everyone who's born, it goes into self preservation mode, and I'm going to save myself. I'm going to make the most of my kingdom and life here. And this is where this crowd was. You see, Jesus accuses his listeners of, of hanging on to their religious traditions rather than the savior of the world, which in essence is self salvation. And in verse 45, he says, Do not think that that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You know, Moses was was a very important figurehead, but he was also one who radically was pointing to a coming Savior. He was radically pointing to Jesus himself. And so my point of application is this. Where is your hope? How are you saving yourself? I mean, is it your goodness? Is it that surely, I mean, there's people out there that are a lot worse than me, so, so surely if God's fair, you know, and so we start building up a God in our minds. Well, I mean, the God that I love, the God that I know is, is okay with certain things, and, and surely if I'm doing good enough, like, he's just going to have pity on me and go, you know, come on in the kingdom. Is it your goodness that you're relying on? Is that the way you're trying to save yourself? Is it your religion? Or is it the gospel way? Or is it Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness that's transferred to you by faith? Let me close. Um, in, in this gospel, we have not encountered a tame Jesus. You know, we talk about that often. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not just this, oh, so just, just soft. And, uh, we, have no, we have encountered a, a bold and authoritative Jesus who has authority over the Sabbath, who has authority over um, life and death and the scriptures. This is the Jesus that we're encountering. And he gives his opposition four stellar witnesses to whom he was, and yet it wasn't enough, was it? And you go out in your contexts, you go out to your schools, and we go out and do our thing, and, and it doesn't seem to be enough, does it? You know, you see, man, well, I mean, Jesus has given me a new heart, and I, like, hunger for things differently than I used to, and I, and I, and I treat people differently than I once did or wanted to or used to. So, so he's at work, and, and we have, you know, a, a body of believers who, is, uh, who gathers together to encourage each other, to say the same things, to go out and do the same things, and yet it's not enough. Well, in this, he's talking to these people, and a few days later, he's going, okay, I've given you four witnesses in this conversation. A few days later, I'm going to give you a fifth. I'm going to give you a fifth witness, and, and here's what he would do. He would would go to a cross, and he'd be murdered on that cross. The only truly innocent man who's ever lived would be murdered. And then three days later, he would walk out of a tomb alive. And the statement that God was making in doing that was this. All right. You want evidence? You want more than that? You want more evidence than, than me Raising Jesus from the dead. You, want, you need more than that to, 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 to know that I mean what I say and that he is who he says he is? Well, you ain't going to get it because that's it. Paul in Acts 17, 31, he preached this to the skeptics. He said, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's my statement. That's the fifth and final witness. Christ was killed and he was raised from the dead. If you want more than that, you're not going to get it. Because God commands all people everywhere to come to Christ because he'll soon judge the world through him. And he proved that he was the judge because he raised him from the dead. That's not ordinary. That's miraculous. The final witness to Christ's identity was his resurrection. So, my question to you is this Is this Christ yours? As he's standing in your place, do you know him? Not do you know things about him or do you like him, but do you know him? Guys, I invite you to come to him in faith and repentance today if you don't. Let's pray. Father, You have given us everything that we need to believe on You. You have given us everything that we need to call out to You. And yet sin blinds. Church participation blinds. Private school education blinds. Christian circles in the South and America blinds. Lord, what I ask is for those in this room whom you are not theirs. They may know you, but you're not theirs. You're not standing in their place before a just and a holy God. Lord, I pray that you would author and perfect faith in them. Would you freely give the gift of faith required, necessary, to wrap our heads and to wrap our hearts around the truth of this gospel? Lord, thank you for stopping to engage with us. Lord, even in this text, you could have just kept on walking. You could have done your thing and said, I'm out of here. And yet you stop and you engage people. That is grace and mercy. You didn't have to stop. So, Lord, if you're stopping in the hearts and minds of some this morning, Lord, would they not walk away as these Pharisees did, not receiving your testimony, not receiving you? Lord, would you call them to yourself? And through the Holy Spirit, give them faith and a deep, deep sense of repentance over sin. We love you. We ask these things only in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.